0: Let's ask God to help us now understand his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your good word. Uh, We thank you that it lets us know you, and it lets us know you by letting us hear from your son Jesus. Our Father, we pray as we come to your word, uh, we would know what it is to trust Jesus And through its teaching, uh, we will be equipped to follow him. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. And in your mercy, help us all to understand it and receive it with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was a joy, wasn't it, this evening to witness Belinda express in baptism her decision to follow Jesus. She, in a sense, has made the big decision that will set the direction of her whole life. Uh, But we know that for her, as for all of us, there are many more decisions in life to make. Where we apply for work. Should we stay or go with our employer? Who should we choose as friends? Oh, should we be single or married? Or single for how long, if married, to whom? And the decisions keep coming. How long should we keep trying for children? Oh, if we have children, how many should we have? Should we rent or buy? In fact, we have to make decisions right up to the end, don't we? Should we think of moving out of our home to supported accommodation? Should we go for burial or cremation? Always decisions. How can we make decisions that will promote our peace and prosperity both both for us and for those we love. Decisions in a sense that are right, that work, that will promote our flourishing. That's not just a question for Christians, is it? Everybody has to make choices and everybody would like to know that their choices are the right ones, that will cause them to prosper, that will help them live in a sense free of anxiety or with the remorse of having made wrong choices. We we'd love to get certain direction, wouldn't we? And there's no shortage of people or organisations who say that they can help us make those decisions. Career advisors, financial planners, employment consultants with their psychometric testing, life coaches, futurologists, oh, actually even pastors. But as believers, should we be Is there, in a sense, a special Christian way of making decisions? Should we be looking for and expecting some kind of specific guidance that will guarantee our success in the things we undertake? Now, some actually do say that, that we should be expecting almost for every decision, or at least the ones we reckon are important, a direct word from God telling us what we should do or some sign that will make his will clear to us. And if we really, really seek it, that's what we will get. That's the Christian way for somebody who's genuine, who's a genuinely spiritual believer, full on for Jesus, to make their decisions, wait to get that, specific direction from God and and there are people who say that you should seek that, that you should expect that, that your Christian life will be, well, a a kind of second-rate Christian life, less than it can be unless you are getting that specific kind of guidance, being led by those words or signs. Now in Deuteronomy 18, God says, no, that's not the way to go. Oh, we'll see, he promises not to leave us without a guiding word. But what he has for his people is something better than this dependence on direct words. In fact, what we'll see is that cultivating that dependence will at best leave you immature, at worst make you self-directed, make your agenda God's agenda and not the other way round. But you know, there was a time in my life when I basically believed that, that the way to live a flourishing, fruitful Christian life was to get, you know, direct guidance from God. Get told by God directly what I should be doing. Now, it was a long time ago, right? That's when I was at high school, because uh, I've been a Christian now for more than 50 years. So once I was young and a young Christian, right? Uh, but my bus had dropped me, if you know Sydney, at a place called Wynyard and I had to work my way through the city to the other side of Hyde Park College Street. And i have been reading books and listening to people who claimed that they had these really fruitful Christian lives and they were fruitful because, well, they'd been led by God, led by God to the specific person that God wanted them to talk to about Jesus or been given guidance so that they could do great things for God and this had happened because they were really seeking God's will, really listening for his direction and they'd been told all sorts of small choices, you know, what seat they should have on the plane, where they should sit on, what they ought to do and they were telling me that that could be true for me too. And I knew that, well, God always had a right way, a specific way. In this case, God had a right way for me to get to school. Out of all the many choices there was one way that he really wanted me to go. The way that would bring me into contact with the people God was wanting me to talk to about Jesus. And I was willing, I was just waiting to be told to get that word because I wanted to be really faithful and fruitful. <laughs> now, how did that work out for me? Well, we'll come back to that when we've looked at Deuteronomy 18. 18. As we know, the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land and they'll have lots of choices, decisions to make in that land. And Moses, and they know this, will no longer be with them. The person who's given them guidance and direction will no longer be with them. Where should they now look for guidance? How should Israel, the people of God, make these choices that they will need to make? the nations surrounding Israel, well, they had an answer to that guidance question. They had all sorts of ways of trying to ensure that the future worked out for them, that they made choices that would kind of guarantee their success and keep them safe and secure. And at the same time, we read that the Lord's very clear that his people are to have nothing to do with those ways of getting guidance. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you're about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Now Moses gives a pretty comprehensive list of the way the pagan nations, not just around Palestine, but we also know that this is what they did in Rome and Greece and Egypt, of the way these pagan nations tried to learn about and control the future so that they would prosper, be ensured of success. And he starts with something he's already denounced, a child sacrifice. Now, that was a way of getting the gods' attention, of putting the gods in your debt, by the extreme costliness of your devotion, a way of obligating the gods to help you to get a favourable outcome to what you desire. And then there are the other more general ways. Divination is a general term for trying to find guidance, signs in the created world, whether it's in a cow's liver or in the star's. Telling fortunes and interpreting omens are other forms of divination in interpreting the movement of the stars or other natural phenomena. Sources are associated with witchcraft, having power in the world through controlling spirits. A charmer was someone who casts spells, a medium, someone who communicates with the spirits of the dead, thinking that they possess supernatural knowledge about the future as well as the past. And, and in fact, many of these have to do, in a sense, with contacting the dead, the realm of the dead. A wizard is, again, someone who's in communication with and seeking to control spirits to do their will in the world. A necromancer, someone who manipulates the spirits of the dead. All this because it's assumed that the dead continue to have an influence in the world. Now, what do all these ways of, in a sense, finding guidance ensuring that your uh, decisions will have a favourable outcome. What do they have in common? Well, they are, let me say, widespread and enduring practices right up to the time of, well, they're still practising these things in the Rome of Paul's day. And they're all designed to manipulate the gods and the spirits to either give information about the future or to control the future to ensure that the desired outcome of your decision will will give you success or turn away danger, whether that's seeking a decision about going on a journey or going into a battle. They all assume a link between this world of human affairs and the world of nature or the world of the dead or the stars and that the inhabitants of those worlds influence our world, can be known and controlled for benefit or harm. And in all of these, it's people who take the initiative, people who are seeking to control their world through the manipulation of others. And so in all these activities, trust is in people, in ourselves, and the knowledge and skills that these special people have which could be taught and learnt. Oh, and yeah, all these practices were usually costly too. And we're told, verse 9 and verse 12, that they are all abominations in the Lord's sight. That is, absolutely detestable to the living God. Just like the idolatry, the belief in and worship of other gods they were associated with is detestable to him. Now, why are these things an abomination to God? Well, a number of reasons. Firstly, they're based on a lie and they rob by deceit. The lie is that the gods or the spirits have independent power in the world and that these specialists, as it were, can tap into it for your benefit if you pay them enough. And that lie then promotes another lie, the lie that the living and true God who rules all things is actually like them and can be bribed and manipulated. At their heart, all these practices are an assertion of human autonomy, that we, independent of the true God, can control our world and our future. And so they're another way of rejecting the limits of our creatureliness and supporting our desire to be like God and to have the world organised around our wishes. And all of these say that the way to live in this world is not knowing and trusting the true almighty creator God, but to control all things yourself. And so they're a rejection of the Lord's sovereign rule and a rejection that reinforces lies about God and about ourselves. And they actually impoverish those who practice them. You see, instead of freeing them, actually they subjugate those who practice them to liars those who claim to have learnt the art of manipulating gods and spirits. And instead of bringing confidence, they actually bring fear and helplessness because if these people can access that world to help you, well, they can access that world to harm you and they can do it without you knowing anything about it. Oh, and if what they say will happen, will be the future... Well, there is nothing that you can do about it. These practices actually bring fear and a resignation that can divide communities and ruin lives. So they're offensive to God and destructive to humanity and God is very clear his people are to have nothing to do with them. They are, verse 13, to be blameless, which has the sense of, Holy, faithful to the covenant, where they love the Lord their God with all that they are and have nothing to do with lies that are a rejection of his sovereign rule and almighty power that suggest he is like dumb idols. And so they're not allowed. There's no licence or liberty granted to God's people to engage in these things. Now, brothers and sisters, some of these practices, based on lies and supporting lies, are still amongst us. And they are still an abomination because at their heart they say that there is an alternate power which claims to operate independently of the Lord God, powers that we can make serve us and in which we can find security independent of the Lord. They're an offence to Almighty God and more, they're a rejection of his grace. And so we should have nothing to do with them in any form, even if we say we're just doing it for fun, whether it's you know Ouija boards or tarot cards or horoscopes. We ought to have nothing to do with them, remembering that what is actually condemned in Deuteronomy continues to be condemned in the judgment, in Revelation. You'll notice again and again sorcerers are excluded from God's presence. Those who engage in these kinds of practices. But does that mean that the rejection of these forms of guidance mean that God's people, Israel, us, are at a disadvantage, somehow robbed of a resource that others have for knowing and deciding the future? Now, Israel, some Israelites might have thought that, especially with Moses going. They might have thought that they were losing access to God and now they're forbidden to have alternate ways, as it were, of ensuring the success of their decision. But the Lord says that his people have no need for these practices. All the nations that don't know the Lord, who have no knowledge of the living God, well, they listen, they they share in these practices. But he says to his people, you shan't listen to them. You don't need to because you have someone else to listen to the prophet like Moses, whom the Lord says he will raise up. Now what are we told about this prophet? And why should we think that the Lord's provision is so much better when it comes to knowing what to do to flourish in his world? Well, we see some of the things, the qualifications of this prophet is to be an Israelite, that is someone in covenant relationship with the Lord, a descendant of Abraham. And God raises him up. That is, this guidance comes at the Lord's initiative, not as the result of human seeking or human manipulation. And this prophet, we're told, is like Moses, in that he mediates between the people and God by bringing (laughs) the word of God to the people, just as Moses did at Sinai. You see there, uh, verses 18 and 19, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now that mediation of Moses at Sinai was actually life-giving, wasn't it? Life-giving to the people because the people needed the word to be in relationship with God but their sin made them unable to be in the Lord's presence. Moses, bringing the word of God to them, brought life. And at its heart, this likeness to Moses lies in the prophet, verse 18, being given God's word, God putting his words in the prophet's mouth. But the reflection on the life and work of Moses also tells us that there is probably more to being like Moses Because we know a lot about him. I mean, he was called and sent for a specific purpose, to liberate God's people. He was faithful in obedience. He was faithful in his prayers for the people. He sought the good of the people and he suffered, both in preparation for and in execution of this role. He's to be like Moses. And like Moses, he will speak God's message, which means that this prophet will speak the word of God, a word that's sure and reliable, and he will speak at, verse 19, with God's authority. Whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So this prophet comes at God's initiative, conforms to God's model prophet, speaks God's message with God's authority, and listening to this prophet, people are listening to God, responding to this prophet, they are responding to God, And being one of God's people actually depends on listening and obeying this prophet. Now, why is this, to have this prophetic word so much better? Well, let's think about the diviner's words. Their words have no more authority than the people who speak them, people who will die. They're mortal. Oh, and their words arise from the creature's attempt to, as it were, look behind the veil, to know and control the unknowable future. And so their words were often obscure, uncertain, conflicting, confusing. And we see in the story about Nebuchadnezzar that there's often a suspicion that these diviners tell people what they want to hear. And because, well, getting a word from these means, was all about works, because the favour these gods showed you was dependent on your sacrifice, your payments, your bribing the god, because they weren't ever really concerned for you, because it depends on works, because it's without grace, the person who seeks guidance in these ways is still as lonely and insecure in the universe as ever because someone your rival might give these gods or spirits a better bigger bribe to frustrate your plans do you harm or you may have chosen the wrong medium or magician whereas your rival has chosen somebody who just has so much more power now contrast that with the prophetic word that god gives his people the word from the almighty living God. That is a public, clear word with authority. It's a certain word, for it comes from the Lord whose word made the world and whose word determines history. And this word comes to you, arises within a relationship of grace. It comes from God's own gracious initiative, his determination to keep His people. And where it's received, it strengthens that relationship of grace. And so where you receive this word, your security, is not just in that specific word, but in the gracious God who gave it. More, coming at the Lord's initiative, this word tells you what you need to know, not necessarily what you want to know. And knowing what you need to know is actually Better, You see, you might be unaware of what you need to know or be asking the completely wrong question because your priorities are all wrong. But the Lord who knows all things speaks what you need to know. And this word that he causes his prophet to speak will then do the Lord's gracious work in the lives of his people, keeping us in relationship with him, keeping us at peace with with him, the one who guarantees our life. And so the people of Israel are not poor, but infinitely richer in God's provision of the prophetic word when God willed to give it. But because the word is so important and comes with such authority, the people are warned that they have to watch out for false prophets, that there's always a need to be discerning, for there'll always be those who want to use the Lord's authority to advance themselves, their ideas, their interests. The prophet, who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken... Well when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord if the word does not come to pass or come true that's a word that the Lord has not spoken the prophet has spoken it presumptuously you need not be afraid of him. So Moses speaks of two kinds of false prophets. There's one who speaks in the name of, that is, on the authority of another god. And Moses has told the people already how to deal with such a prophet who's seeking to draw them away to worship another god in Deuteronomy 13. But Moses says there's another kind, the one who claims to speak in the name of the Lord, claims that his or her words are from God and have God's authority while they are just the prophet's own human words. And he says this prophet speaks presumptuously. That is, this prophet is showing contempt for the Lord by making his or her human words so frail and fallible, the equivalent of the words of the living God, making his or her powerless, uncertain words the same as the Lord's powerful and sure word. And Moses said, You don't need to fear such a prophet, their words have no power. But but how can God's people tell whether somebody's speaking presumptuously or not? Well, verse thirty two, Moses gives the truth in reality test. Does what the prophets say come to pass actually happen? Because the Lord's word never fails to happen. What he speaks, he does. Now, that's a necessary test, but it's not a sufficient test. We learned back in Deuteronomy 13, didn't we, that sometimes false prophets can say true things. Or, or perhaps the fulfilment of the prediction of even a genuine prophet, like, well, Jeremiah with his prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, might be many years away. So that test alone is not sufficient. And Scripture gives other tests for the genuineness of a word to be a word from God. In Deuteronomy 13, we saw that the test is conformity to existing revelation. Does the word the prophet speaks conform to and strengthen the people's exclusive covenant relationship to the Lord their God? Oh, and saying the prophet will be like Moses tells you that there is a character test as well. Is this prophet faithful to God? Does he serve or she serve the Lord's people and seek their good? They're willing to suffer in that service and not seek their own enrichment. Now, we need to hear to embrace these tests, don't we? Because our own experience, as well as the New Testament, tells us there is still a need for discernment. Our Lord Jesus said that false prophets would come seeking to deceive his people. And we see that there are some who claim to speak God's word. In fact, sometimes they claim that you can consult them and they can tell you exactly what you should do to have the Lord's blessing and success, who tell you actually that you need them and you need their words for spiritual success. Uh, the warnings Jesus gave continue into the early church. 1 John warns us of deceiving spirits. Paul tells us that while we may not despise prophesying, we should test all things. So we need to know and apply the tests of Scripture, the truth test, the faithfulness to already given revelation test, the character test. And our Lord especially reminds us of the character test. Beware, he says, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognise them by their fruits. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. Bad trees don't bear good fruit. Good trees don't bear bad fruit. Look at their lives. But our context is different, isn't it? We're no longer waiting for the prophet like Moses. That prophet has come. Over the course of Israel's history, God did raise up many prophets for his people. He never failed to give his people the guidance they needed, but none of those prophets were quite like Moses. And so there was still, when Jesus came, still the expectation of this climactic prophet. And in fact, that expectation had just grown stronger in the hundreds of years between Malachi, the last of the biblical prophets, and Jesus' birth. And in the preaching of the Gospel, Jesus is declared to be the prophet like Moses. In sending Jesus, the Apostle said in the second sermon recorded in Acts, the Apostle said God was fulfilling what he had spoken through Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And the apostles turned to that prophecy to emphasise that being included in the people of God, the people who would be ready for the time when God would restore all things, actually depended on receiving Jesus' words as the words of the Lord. Jesus himself recalls the words of Jeremy 18 in John 12 when he says his word was the word of God given to him by the Father, the word that mediates inclusion or exclusion from the Lord's people. Jesus speaks the word the Father has given him. He brings the word of God, the word that actually brings us into a relationship with the living God where we can now be assured of his grace and favour, peace with God. And like Moses, Jesus mediates that word between the holy God and the sinful people. His word is life-giving. Oh, unlike Moses, Jesus prayed and sought the good of his people and suffered. But the Lord Jesus is incomparably greater than Moses. He's a prophet and more than a prophet. In a sense, he is the climax of every prophetic word. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, says the author of Hebrews. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God's purposes for creation climax and find their fulfilment in Jesus. God's revelation to us of himself climax and find their fulfilment in Jesus. Because in Jesus we come to know all we can know about God because he's the radiance of God's glory. And in Jesus... Actually, we come to know and receive all we need to know to be in relationship with the living God because he deals with our sin. After making purifications for sin, he sat down. Jesus is far greater than Moses. In fact, the author says Jesus deserves more glory than Moses. Well, the comparison is between the builder of a house and the house. Jesus has so much more honour than Moses. John's Gospel specifically contrasts or compares Moses and Jesus. The law was given through Moses. That was a good gift. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Jesus brings that grace and truth to all who will receive His word brings that forgiveness of sin where we know and can be sure of God's favour, brings that truth that will bring us to life. There will never again be a prophet like Moses because there is no more need. We have the final word, the word that brings us grace and truth, the word that cleanses us from our sins, the word that will give us eternal life. The word of the Lord Jesus is the word all must follow and hold fast to all our lives. And if you are not yet a believer, you need to hear that. Whether you'll be included in the people of God, whether you will enjoy eternal life, whether you'll be spared in the judgment, depends upon whether you will receive the word of Jesus as the word of the living creator God. That word is now our security in an uncertain world. It's peace in a world where we cannot know the future for it brings us peace with the eternal almighty God. It brings us to stand, in a sense, to live in his grace where we always know his favour. It's Jesus' word that now must be our guide. And we should look nowhere else to know how to make decisions, choices that will promote our peace and prospering, our peace and prospering as the Lord's people. His word is sufficient. But I started off talking about decisions we all must make, you know, work, relationships. And so are you perhaps disappointed with where we've arrived? Disappointed as some Israelites were that they were not going to be able to get these specific words about what to do when they wanted that word on their own demand. Are you wanting specific words? Perhaps feeling your Christian life is a little lacking without them. Do you want that detailed guidance, that direct word from the Lord for all sorts of life decisions? And so you find being pointed to Jesus just a little disappointing. Well, think about it. Moses was never the prophet that you could go to and ask about your job or who you should marry. In fact, what we read about Moses meant that you'd probably be terrified to do that. You know, he guided the nation with his God-given words and you could ask him to teach you the Lord's will from his Torah, his instruction, but Moses was no fee-for-service oracle. And we've got something better than Moses in the teaching the word of the Lord, Jesus The word, he is the word and his is the word that fulfils all God's word and teaches us how to read all that God has spoken to his people. The Lord Jesus, speaking the words of God, tells us what God thinks we need to know for life. It gives us God's agenda for his people. And that is so much better than chasing your own agenda. And this word, the Lord's word, will actually do the Lord's work in your life. We're promised it will make us wise for salvation. We're promised that through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, the person of God will be complete, ready for every good work. This word actually shapes your priorities and your character so that you will come to want for yourself what the Lord wants for you. And it will do all this where you live humbly before the Lord, giving him the rule of your life, allowing him to set the direction of your life and knowing his love, confident and secure in his grace revealed in Jesus. And giving yourself to this word will also increase your trust in Jesus' promises to you. Just as studying the word did for the king we met in Deuteronomy 17 last week, the king is the model person of God, studying this word will teach you the fear of the Lord. And so nurture that wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord, the wisdom that knows how to live the life of human flourishing in your life. And you can be confident that we're taught by this word. You are giving yourself to the work of the Lord, seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. If the Lord wants to get through to you, he will. The Lord has no trouble making himself known when he wants to. And so you should be confident as you receive this word of Jesus that brings you to know grace and truth that the Lord Jesus will be your good shepherd who will guide you into every good work he has prepared for you. Having the words spoken by this one who is like Moses and greater than Moses, that is all the word we need to live that life of flourishing in this world and all the word we need to live forever. So embrace that word. Because, you see, the person who wants to get specific words from the Lord for every action, to use him like some diviner to give them certainty about the success of their choices, they won't be able to have that confidence. You see, that person will never grow up, that person who wants to be guided all the time by specific words. They'll actually have the arrested development of the believer who does not trust God enough to just get on and do what the Lord says, doesn't trust that the Lord has told you what you need to know to live for him. And that desire to guarantee the success of your plans and choices by having a direct word will actually make you vulnerable to false prophets who will tell you what you want to hear, vulnerable to the tragedy of confusing human words that come from the false prophet's own imagination or even from your own imagination or interpretation of events as you look for that sign, confusing human words, with the words of God. And it is a tragedy to confuse human words with the words of God, because that confusion undermines faith when things don't work out the way you expected or wanted. You see, thinking that the human word was God's word for you, when everything, well, just doesn't work out, makes you wonder if God's changed his mind or stopped treating you with grace or isn't powerful enough to bring about what he said. And all those things destroy your faith. Worse, where you've confused the human world with God's word, you can end up blaming God, being angry with God when things don't work out, when perhaps that failure should make you examine yourself, help you see maybe your lust or your greed where you've not been conforming your life to God's clearly revealed word through his Son. Where you confuse the human word with God's word you lose the opportunity to grow in godliness. Even worse, this looking for words or signs to confirm your course can keep you living a self-directed life which you confuse for a godly life. You see, where you're always looking for a sign to confirm your course of action or a word you are the one who is setting the agenda, looking for the blessing of your plans, wanting the Lord to be the guarantee of what you have chosen to do. And there is no repentance in that. So if you're a believer, learn to embrace what God has said through his Son, the one like and greater than Moses. It is his word and his word alone you need to follow. God raises him up, God gives him to you, he speaks the word of God and that is all you need. And we have to learn that and we have to practice relying on his word alone, letting it shape us, shape our character, shape our agendas, build our trust. Embrace that word. Seek it, study it, store it up in your heart. But what about me at the bus stop? Well, God in his mercy brought me back to my senses and back to his word. (laughs) He actually reminded me that what a follower of Jesus should do is prioritise love of others. That's pretty clear in the word, isn't it? And for me, that meant not being paralysed by indecision, but loving my teachers, whatever else was going on in my head, loving my teachers by getting to school on time. Oh, and it also meant loving other pedestrians and commuters by being kind and considerate in my travels, because when I really got underway, like many other schoolboys, we used to roar through the streets with these very heavy school cases at our side that could do significant damage. He brought me back to say I should love my neighbour and that meant I should act to get to school and get there considerately. But he taught me more things. He taught me that good intentions doesn't actually make you smart. And that what seems like faith, wanting to know exactly what I should do, can actually mask faithlessness. Not trusting God enough That where I did what he said by his prophet in his clear public word, he would guide me and prepare guide me to and prepare me for the good he had for me to do. But best of all, I learned that my Saviour Jesus is like he is in the Gospels. He's actually patient with the stupidity, and that's what it was, the stupidity of his followers, faithful to his promise, forgiving and gracious. I did not need to be anxious that I'd somehow fall out of his love if I just didn't get exactly the right word and know exactly the right thing to do. That's a great thing to learn, isn't he? That he's forgiving and gracious and faithful. The one at work through his word to help his followers mature in him and so to live enduringly fruitful lives doing the good he has called us to do and he teaches us to do in his word. Oh, and the one who in his grace, faithful to his promises, will bring us to what he has promised us because he has committed himself to us. Isn't that a good thing to know? And isn't that what his word teaches us? His word that brings us to know his grace and truth is enough. Don't look elsewhere. Know him in his word. Be taught by him in his word. Be shaped and directed by him in his word and live to God's glory. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, Uh, We pray that we would learn to listen to the word, the one who is like Moses and greater than Moses, our Lord Jesus Christ speaks. We pray that we will be people who read it and read it all our days and who are taught by that word to have that fear of you which is the beginning of wisdom. We pray that we would read it and read it all our days and know it so that we wouldn't fall prey to people who offer us certainty by enslaving us to them, themselves and their insights. We pray that you would keep working through your word in us and bringing us to maturity as your followers. We ask this in his name. Amen.